bum bum bottom 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 bum b
I'm really enjoying that. On our trip, Brad and I have been reading back and forth his short stories, and we'll probably talk about that yeah. a little bit. Yeah. Um, but I, I mean, I've I really had a blast. I've learned a lot, and I'm looking forward to getting more into Stephen King's works and having the place of Bangor, Maine, in my brain. You know, after going to New Orleans with Billy uh, for the Overlook Film Festival, and if you want to hear another really excellent car audio episode, listen to our previous bonus episode about the Overlook. Um, it, it just came to, uh, I came to a realization that it's not that difficult or expensive to just jump in your car and drive a mess ton of hours. You know, going to New Orleans from D.C., was much longer than going from D.C. to Bangor. Uh, this journey is about, what, it's like 12 hours long with yeah. with a couple breaks? Yeah. Uh, totally doable, and for somebody like myself who loves to drive and somebody like Lisa who loves to be a passenger, it's, a, it's an exhilarating journey just to get there. And then once you get to Bangor, it is very much like walking into a Stephen King novel. You are in Derry, you are in It, you are in Graveyard Shift. It's crazy and delightful, to Lisa's point. Yeah. So what we thought we would do is we would talk a little bit about where we went, how we experienced Stephen King's Maine, and then we would also talk about one of the graphic novels we brought with us, uh, the adaptation of Creepshow done by Bernie and Michelle Wrightson. Uh, we read that while we were up north as well, and I, I, I mean, I love that book. I love the movie, but damn it, I think the comic book is even better than the movie. But uh, no, 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 no get in ahead of ourselves. Get in ahead of ourselves. So when we first arrived to Bangor, where did we go? What was stop number one? Go backwards through your Instagram. Yeah, because if you go to the, the, the Mouth Dork Instagram, you'll see all the spots. Uh, I believe the first stop, Lisa, was the standpipe, the Thomas Hill standpipe. Okay, yeah, that sounds right. Which is a, a, a legendary monument uh, in featured prominently in It. Uh, and there's the bird bath. And what's cool is if you go and you visit the standpipe, you go, oh, yep, that's the standpipe from It. And to the in the park right before the standpipe where the birdbath is, you can also see the bench where King wrote portions of that novel in long form. So allegedly. Got, allegedly. All of these things are allegedly. Uh, <laughs> Stephen King hasn't written this all down, but it's all through rumor and word of mouth that the, the, these are the spots where things happen. Now, clearly, like, the standpipe is from it. Right. Uh, you know, it is described in detail. Yeah, As so. is the next stop, uh, the Paul Bunyan statue that comes alive for young Richie Tozier uh, in It, uh, which is on uh, Main Street of Bangor, um, near the Hollywood Casino. And they've built all these uh, little care centers around the statue, not wanting to move the statue. So we did selfies in front of that. What did you think of seeing those those uh, areas, Lisa? Those are super cool. I definitely thought the standpipe would be a great place for something dark and dastardly to happen. It's up on this big uh, hill. Uh, so one side of it feels very safe because you're uh, exposed to the suburbs. Right. But the opposite side of the standpipe, you're against the woods. Right, right, and right. And we walked all around that thing and it was... It's interesting. <laughs> if you, you know, throw yourself into the mindset of Stephen King novels, 
and you start walking around the standpipe, and I'm, you know, I'm letting my vision focus on the circular uh, shape of the standpipe and how you can never quite see what's around the corner. The corner never ends. And as I'm circling the standpipe a couple times, I legitimately gave myself uh, some goosebumps. The willies. The willies, yeah. And I just thought that was, (laughs) you know, in the spirit of the vacation for sure. You should be very careful about giving yourself the willies because you will get hairy palms. Hairy palms. Now, I think, Lisa, and correct me if I'm wrong, but the coolest thing we did while we were in Bangor was go to Mount Hope Cemetery. Yes. Uh, which is uh, featured prominently in uh, both Pet Cemetery and it. It is where young Georgie is buried, and it is also where uh, young Gage Creed is buried. And the Mary Lambert film actually shot scenes of Pet Cemetery in the Mount Hope Cemetery. Uh, and Lisa and I, we drove in, we parked, and we were determined to recreate shots or recreate frames from the Lambert movie with our iPhone. And uh, that took some hunting. You know, we had to bring up the scene on our phone, watch it, find the uh, appropriate landmarks. The yeah, appropriate- we took some screen grabs from the trailer. And uh, uh, we found the names on the headstones in the movie, and then we just went around looking for those names on the headstones. Yeah. And we, we found managed it. to find Georgie. And we found Georgie, the the real-life 11-year-old boy Georgie, yeah. that inspired the name of the character from it as well. Apparently, presumably, there is a Carrie White also. We did not find Carrie White. We did Carrie not White. find that one. And in fact, I looked, like, Googling on, uh, on the internet. Yeah. Um... Some people had taken pictures with a headstone that said Carrie, but I'm pretty sure it wasn't Carrie White. I think it was like Carrie M or something. Yeah. Um, so, yes, this place is gorgeous and it's massive. This uh, cemetery has been there since the 1800s. Yeah. And so some of these... And it looks it. <laughs> and it looks it. There are, like, and it's not flat like you would think no. like of modern cemeteries being... It's very hilly, and these headstones just poke out at every angle. And a lot of them are broken and busted and tipped over. It's quite the uh, Stephen King Cemetery. And the mosquitoes were thick and enormous. As we were tromping around, we were flailing like idiots because these huge mosquitoes would land on you, and you would feel it. It was like... A freaking bird perching on you. I'm uh, still suffering from it. I'm covered in mosquito bites. I feel really bad because the gnats were also awful. So I was standing next to Brad so that he would get my gnats because he's so much taller than me. And he, I guess, also got my mosquitoes because I only got, Brad's got twice as many bites as I have. But our technique, should we share our technique for finding the exact screenshot? Sure. Um, so to find that Pet Cemetery screenshot, we picked out a couple of landmarks in the shots. And the first landmark we saw, so there are different kinds of monuments set up for different families. And so there are ones that are like obelisk-like, and there are ones that are like like 
boxes yeah, almost. Like a mausoleum kind of. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But not like man size, but like little. Yeah. Um, and so, and there were very few crosses at the cemetery. So in the screen grab that we have with Stephen King playing the reverend, um, we can see one cross, one of those boxes with three little headstones on either side, and in the foreground of the aerial shot, there is a obelisk that we thought said debits. Yeah, and we and we could tell also, you know, like Lisa said aerial shot, but you could it's a downward angle from a uh, hill. Yeah, from a hill. So we knew we had to find it on the edge of the of a hill. Uh, yeah. So we just kind of so the first thing we did was we found the highest peak and we marched our our butts up that peak. <laughs> oh my gosh, these stairs are so scary. <laughs> They're all stone and uneven and slick. And I was just having visions of one of us twist, twisting our ankles <laughs> and having to carry the other out. Um, but we went to the highest peak and we just started looking for this Tebbets obelisk. Yep. And and once we we started getting a little bit dejected, but and we moved to flatter ground. But that's when we saw the box. Right. We saw the, the box first. first. Yeah. And so once we found that box. We saw the headstone that was being used as Georgie's headstone. It was just a few feet away from that. And then from there, Gage, not Gage. Georgie. Oh, excuse yeah. me, Gage. And so from there, the, we tried to figure out what the angle was from the aerial shot. And then we marched up in that direction and we only, it only took us a free, a few obelisks to find the the yeah, tenets. but it, it probably took us an hour of hunting. I mean, the place is huge. And I don't think we even dropped the whole thing. No. Like, because well, no. there's like a an outside path, but then it kind of branches out. It's kind of a... It's hard to tell the shape of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's sprawling for sure. But yeah, so you can go on to uh, our... Uh, uh, at Mouth Dork Instagram feed and see the shots that we've recreated where where they're not perfect. <laughs> well, we don't have like long angle lenses. I think our aerial shot is pretty dark. Our, our aerial, yeah. The, 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 up the hill shot. Up the hill shot is pretty good. The shot where we try to be Stephen King, not so much. Yeah, we could have worked on our poses a little bit better. Yeah, yeah, for sure. <laughs> Next time. Uh, but And then after that, we... Oh, we went to uh, the corner of Union and Jackson, where the supposed storm drain is located that uh, Pettywise pops out from and rips poor Georgie's arm off. There's actually three... Um, drains there. Drains there. Two are round, and then one is square. And we presumed that it was the square one because it's the one against the curb. Well, and also they had... the. The second circular one on Union and Jackson had the word it on it and an arrow pointing to the square one. And then when we went over to the square one, it has the word it written on the grate itself. And we were getting pretty excited and we were going like, oh, we should go find a used copy of it and we'll come back to this drain pipe. And so um, when we, we hit a couple of bookstores in Bangor and in Portland, and we found a copy of it, and we read it, and in the book, it says that it's a, a semicircle. Semicircle. Yeah. So it doesn't look like either of the trains. Right, here. right. But the SK Tours, the official SK Tours of Bangor, or the unofficial SK Tours of Bangor, run by Stu, Pink, uh, Stu Tinker, 
That's what he says is the uh, the, the storm drain. So self-proclaimed you know, experts, they're always right. I'm gonna go with him. <laughs> it had the word it, it on it, Lisa. I'm pretty satisfied with the drain picture. Yeah, it uh, did, it did turn out to be a pretty good. It's picture. funny wherever we went uh, hunting for the barrens or the standpipe or the bunion statue or the cemetery or the drains or Stephen King's house itself, there were always other people on this adventure. We kept running into tourists one after the other. Like at Stephen King's house, like every 10 minutes, somebody would pop up to get their selfie in front of the house. Yeah, it's a, it's a, a mecca of sorts, is that? Yeah, it's a pilgrimage. Yeah. Yeah, for sure, absolutely. And if that seems culturally inappropriate, I apologize. <laughs> but it's impressive how many Stephen King fans will make this trip like we did. You know, we talked to people from Chicago. We saw license plates from Florida. I mean, people were coming a long way just to do their selfie in front of the Paul Bunyan statue. And there is a quote. We have one of those, like, tour books that yeah. we we actually... Brad had a copy at home, but we found another one. In yeah, the Graham Bean one, yeah. And um, we were poking through that, and there is a Stephen King quote um, about why he stayed in Bangor. And he says, like... Part of it is like I live in Bangor. I love Bangor, obviously. But part of it was, well, if people want to find me, they know where I am, and they they have to be willing to go out of their way. Right, so right, I right. think that there is a certain part of Stephen King that wants to draw people to this this place. And Bangor has made a little bit of a mini business around, uh, you know, Stephen King's Maine. Yeah, that that story we went to. Yeah, uh, uh, Gerald Winters and Son. It's all Stephen King stuff. They had manuscripts and yeah. obviously signatures. Oh, they had like the door from The Shining, yeah. the, the Kubrick film, and <laughs> all kinds of crazy memorabilia and like every it-related pop Funko figure you could imagine. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so my favorite though, Lisa, yeah. of the uh, places that we hunted down was not in Bangor. We drove an hour and a half to Durham, Maine, which is where Stephen King grew up. And that's where the Shiloh Chapel is. This place is so cool. I mean, it's gorgeous looking. And it's supposedly one of the buildings that led to King's inspiration around the Marston House in Salem's Lot. But the, the place itself has such a rich and bizarre history. I don't think we can do it justice. I think our listeners just got to go. The Wikipedia page is a rabbit hole. You'll just be clicking and clicking and clicking. But I want to at least give the short right, version of it. this story. If you've got it, if you can do it, do it. So there was this evangelical preacher who believed that... At the turn of the century. At the turn of the century, who thought that who wanted to Christianize the world, and he had this grand vision. So he started his own church in Shiloh, in Durham, and, and this church became this massive complex that housed over a thousand people, and it was a cult. People were, were selling off their farms, gave, <laughs> giving all of their belongings to the church so that they could be with this uh, with this guy. And he eventually got uh, evicted for 
couple of manslaughters, and, <laughs> and at this point, like most of the complex has got had gotten ripped down in the 50s, so only the chapel part stands. But the chapel is still an evangelical church, and we went there on Sunday, and and we even like scoped out the Shiloh. It's now called the Shiloh Chapel. It's also been called the Shiloh Temple, um, and they on their original. On, uh, on their faith mission statement, they don't say anything about Frank Stanford. No. But they don't say anything about, like, they're still an independent evangelical church. And it's not like they're Baptists or Methodists or whatever. Yeah, they're it's, just... They're, it's, they're their own thing. And they had a full congregation while we were there. Yeah, we, we, <laughs> we decided to visit that on Sunday. You, like, whoops. Two dumb-dumbs. And so we, we showed up in the parking lot. You know, we drove an hour and a half from Bangor to Durham. And we showed up in the parking lot just as they were getting out. So here comes these weird Stephen King stalkers pulling into their parking lot. And we did not want to get out of our car or talk to anybody yeah. until they were all gone. And we waited about a half hour. They all left the, the, the chapel. And then we got out, took our selfie. Yeah. It's a beautiful building. It's gorgeous. I mean, it's super gorgeous. And, like, around Durham, you know, uh, I've been listening to the uh, audiobook of Salem's Lot. And when you're in Durham and you're listening to the Salem's Lot, I mean, it's, yeah, Stephen King does such a great job of creating the environment or replicating the environment of his, of these uh, stories, of these cities, of these towns. You know, Jerusalem Lot is a fake place, but it is Durham. You know, Derry is a fake place, but it is Bangor. It's really, really cool and strange and, yeah, spooky. Yeah, we, we skipped the waterworks. We also went to the waterworks. Oh, my God. So one of my favorite things that Lisa and I did this trip was we, we when we went to Gerald Winters and Son, you know, I didn't have the money to buy any autographed books or what have you. And uh, truth be told, we have a couple already from when King visited George Mason University a few years back. We got to meet him and, and get some books signed. Uh, but so we're, we're, I didn't want to buy or spend a lot of money, but I did want to buy something from Gerald Winters and Son. And I bought a paperback copy of Night Shift, which is the first Stephen King short story collection I, I ever read. And Lisa has never properly read Stephen King's work before. And we thought, well, at night, before we go to bed, why don't we read each other a short story? So uh, fun. We're such dorks. We've but never it's so done sweet. that before, though. Yeah. And so for the first night, uh, we crack open Night Shift, and Lisa's in bed with me, and I read Graveyard Shift. Yeah. Which is, you know, uh, a, uh, a giant rat story. Yeah. And it's actually a really good short story. Awesome rat imagery. And it's got a nice stick it to the man message, which yes. I appreciate. Yes. It's incredibly well written. And, uh, uh, you know, it was also adapted into a super cheesy, maybe terrible film from 1990 of the same but title. So Worth watching. So that we was such a great time. We read the story, then we watched the movie. Some really interesting main accents in that movie. Oh, Stephen Mocked is crazy. <laughs> <laughs> His main accent is nuts. Uh, he's the dad from the Monster Squad. Yes, he uh, is. If you don't know, um, and, and we watched the film, and the film was shot or in Maine, yeah. and. The next day, we drive out to the Bangor Waterworks and take photos of all the surrounding area and what have you. And it's like you read the story, you watch the movie, and then you live the environment. And you, it looks like, once you've read the story, it looks like a building that is 
taming with rats. It sure does. It sure but the, does. The, the, the part that I kept on thinking about was in the movie, there was the um, ex- exterminator. Uh, yeah, Brad, Brad Dorif. Brad Dorif plays the, the mad exterminator. And uh, he is like vacuuming out rats and then like just <laughs> spilling them into the water. Yeah, into the river. Into the river. And that's all I could think about. <laughs> like, it's so like evocative. Like, you just see this huge tube and then you just see these like bodies, like, well, you don't know, like shadows being shot through this yeah. cylinder. It's awesome. And so that day, after we went to the waterworks, we drove to two uh, locations that are not necessarily close to each other. We went to, uh, is it, it's called Orrington? Yeah. Orrington, Maine, which is not too far from Bangor. And that's where the, that's the house. There's a house there that Stephen and Tabitha and the family stayed at while he was teaching at the university. And that's the house by River Road, uh, AKA Route 15, I wanna say. And that's the house where his young daughter, uh, Naomi, her cat Smucky, was struck and killed on the, the on River Road. And they ended up burying that cat in the backyard. Where there was a where there was a pet cemetery. Right. And th- while he was at that house, that's when he, re- you know, came up with the idea for that novel, which is one of the Stephen King novels that, when I was a kid bothered me the most and even still watching the movie uh this weekend i mean it's a really despairing film yeah Uh, it's you know the the death of a child and the resurrection of the child into a zombie child it's an uncomfortable kind of horror it's not a fun horror movie it's not graveyard shift yeah but here we are in orrington we drive out there we snap a photo of the home it is somebody's home still somebody lives there uh and then we're like well, now let's drive to the farmhouse from the film. And this which, is in Herman. Uh, no, it's in Hancock. Hancock. Hancock, Maine, which is about an hour plus, hour and 20 minutes from Bang, or from Orrington. And we drive way out there. We find that home, no problem. And that home looks like the home. I mean, it has not changed at all. It's Obviously. still... Like, it's still burning with celluloid. Obviously, the people who live there must appreciate its history because it's still that, like, butter yellow color. Not changed. That little stone wall is still there. It still seems really dangerously close to the highway. Uh, Well, it's incredibly close to the highway. And you can see in the photographs that we took and put up on our Instagram, like, you know, that, that road is right up on the lawn and... You can still see young Gage going for that kite. Oh no, here comes no. the Mack truck. That was, that was fun because we ended up watching Pet Cemetery that, that night. night. Yeah, that yeah, really yeah. Cool. That was, that was, that, and so yeah, I think we did Stephen King's Maine up proper. Yes, we Anything did. else we need to focus on about our vacation side of things? Um, um, let me just look at your... So, Lisa, yeah. you've now read some Stephen King. You've yeah. read a lot of Salem's Lot. You've read several stories out of Night Shift. We read Trucks. That's yeah. the, other, that's oh, the yeah. other thing we did. Dice Arts. Yeah, we read Trucks, which is inspired by a truck stop slash restaurant called Dice Arts, which is in Herman, Maine. Which we actually, that was where we had our first meal in Maine yep. and our last meal Yeah, I Maine. had my lobster roll. I had my moxie. 
for the first night, and then this morning, uh, before we left, uh, we had a big trucker's plate breakfast. And the reason we went back twice is the first time we went, our waitress was like a little surly. <laughs> a little surly? <laughs> Super surly. And we got say. there a little after 11, and I had, you know, I'm like a neurotic person, so I had already scoped out the menu and chosen what I wanted, but this woman gave us the lunch menus, yeah. and so then we ended up ordering for the lunch menus, and so I ended up just having a veggie burger, and I was so disappointed that I didn't get my proper truck stop breakfast. But it was still Me a pretty good veggie burger. Meanwhile, the regulars knew to ask for the breakfast menu, and they were all having breakfast. I felt like such a rude. <laughs> well, we had a great breakfast this morning. We did. Uh, Blueberry I, pancakes yeah. with real Maine blueberries. <laughs> so, and Maine maple syrup. Uh, Lisa, yes. you've now read all this stuff. Yeah. You've now lived and breathed Stephen King's Maine. Uh, do you see the appeal? Do you see what originally got Brad super excited about his stories when when he was, uh, you know, 10, 11, 12? Obviously, you have, like, this love of all things genre. Yeah. So I can see definitely why that would appeal to you as a kid. What I find really evocative about his writing is the way that his narrator kind of moves southly between points of view in a way where, like, you, when you're, when the narrator it's, it's is engaged. It's third-person omniscient. But when the narrator is engaged with a single character, the narrator is that character's yeah. thoughts. Yeah, so especially it's, in Salem's Lot. Yeah, so I, you end up getting very lost in the people. One of my favorite chapters early from Salem's Lot is where he goes all around the clock in one day in Salem, and you get to live with all of these different individuals throughout the full day. Just one o'clock, this is happening. Two o'clock, this is happening. When you get done with Salem's Lot, do you think you will read another Stephen King novel? With your recommendation, I know that... Um, I mean, I've got it ready. Exactly. It's loaded. I'm ready to, I'm ready to fire it at you. Because even reading the short stories... Like, you can tell that his output is uneven. And that's totally fine. Like, he's so <laughs> The last prolific. story Lisa and I read was Trucks, yeah. which became Maximum Overdrive. And that is a goofy, goofy, maybe dumb story. It's, it's like, definitely, like, a seven-year-old's idea. Where it's like, <laughs> what if trucks became alive? How would they get their gas pumped? Well, if you think Trucks is silly, Lisa... Wait till you watch Maximum Overdrive. I'm excited for myself, for myself in the future. But but so you're 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 in, intrigued and you're engaged and you want to uh, check out more. Yeah. Well, I would recommend the Dead Zone next. Okay. And considering the political environment that we are in right now, the Dead Zone is more relevant than ever. Yikes. Uh, and uh, you know, not condoning anything, but I can understand why Johnny Smith uh, does what Johnny Smith does. Um, okay. I think that's our tour. Shall we talk about Creepshow a little bit? Yeah, let's do it. So, uh, Creepshow is uh, a 1982. I could be wrong on that, but we're driving. We don't have our computers or our IMDb in front of us. But I believe it's a 1982 horror anthology film directed by George A. Romero, the director of The Night of the Living Dead, Dawn of the Dead, Day of the Dead. And the screenplay, it's an original from Stephen King, and both of them wanted to capture the spirit uh, and the tone of EC Comics stuff like Tales from the Crypt and Vault of Horror. So each story really does feel like 
there is a crypt keeper present uh, curating these macabre tales. And in the adaptation done by Michelle and Bernie Wrightson, they actually give the crypt, not the crypt keeper, the creep, uh, the narration duties. The creep appears in the film as an animated character and as a puppet, uh, but he's he, silent. He's silent. Now, in the graphic novel, he gets to speak, and he speaks a lot. He, he does a lot of the uh, overarching narration. Right. Listeners, apologize while I cough real quick. <laughs> oh what, my god! You're not going to strenuously edit this. I, I, I may edit it. I probably won't edit it. You know, these car episodes. These are real behind the veil type of episodes. Yep. Um, so the what is it? It's five stories, Lisa. I guess. You've got it right there in front of you. I know, but they're not like numbered. It's like your typical comic book where there's no page numbers or nothing. Right, right. <laughs> Pet peeve of Lisa's. <laughs> uh, it's and, and and the order is different in the adaptation versus the film. Uh, in the graphic novel, the first story is called Father's Day, and then it's the one. Then it's the gar- the the lonesome death of Jordy Verrill. And then it's the the crate after that. Yeah, then it's the crate. Then it is the great is long. Um, then the next one is something to tide you over. The oh, one that happens at the beach with Ted Danson and Leslie Nielsen. So and, good. And then the last one is flipping, flipping. Is the bug one? They're creeping up on you. Yeah. Ugh, that one is so gross. And so in the film, I believe. Uh, the, the crate comes first before the Ted Danson tied one. Yeah. Yeah, those are flips. Um, what do you, so you've seen the movie. Yeah. You like the movie. I do. We rewatch the movie. It's enjoyable. Yeah. Uh, what do you think of the graphic novel versus the film? It's gorgeous. I mean, the art is absolutely amazing. Yeah, Bernie Wrightson's a legend. Wrightson has worked with King on multiple projects. He was the illustrator on his novel, Cycle of the Werewolf, and he was the illustrator on the fifth Dark Tower book, uh, Wolves of Kala. Yeah. And, uh, you know, Wrightson's a legend in his own work. Uh, If you're looking for an amazing adaptation of Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, I recommend his book uh, with those illustrations. It's stunning. Everything he does is, you know, belongs on a museum wall. And I find the storytelling to be every bit as scary and as creepy as the movie, and sometimes even more so. Yeah, well, that that was my big takeaway in rereading the adaptation is that, you know, it's this, it's the whole snake eating its own tail thing because it's King and Romero wanting to recreate EC Comics cinematically and then Bernie and Michelle coming in and adapting that so that they really have recreated Tales from the Crypt and Vault of Horror in this comic. Well, it's a, it's a brilliant marketing thing because the film has, opens with the bookends of the kid with the comic book and the dad Played by Joe Hill. That's right. Excellently. He clearly gets his <laughs> acting skills from his father. Um, but he, like, the the dad throws the comic book away and then the storytelling is the flipping of the comic book in the wind. And so you watch the movie and you go like, I want to read that comic. And then you can. Right. Yeah. So Father's Day uh, is this story of this woman who murdered her dad after he murdered her fiance. Right. And 
you know, when the, when he was alive, every Father's Day, she would bake him a cake. And she's visiting his grave, and she could hear the dad go, Where's my cake? And the clack Where's of the, my cake? The clack of the... Um, the cane. The cane, yeah. And so she's gone to visit her dad at his grave, you know, kicking back some whiskey or vodka. And she has family members in the movie. One of them is Ed Harris, who's a, a magnificent dancer, if you've seen that film. <laughs> his dance skills are Brad-level good. Um, and they're waiting to talk to her because there's this impression that she's she now retains all the wealth. And when she dies, they're all going to divvy it up amongst themselves. But this is a huge theme in Stephen King, like just rotten things happening to rotten people. <laughs> Especially in Creepshow. I don't think there's a nice person in any of these no. stories. No, they're uh, all garbage people. Yeah, and you know... Uh, the dad comes out of his grave, he's a zombie, and he kills some people. That, that one's easily my least favorite. It's, my, it's my least favorite, too. As the film and as the comic. The but, next story, The Lonesome Death of Jordy Verrill, I think this one works even better as a comic book. Oh, I, without a doubt. One, because Wrightson's depiction of the, the meteorite and the space moss that envelops poor Jody and, and, and takes over his property and also his uh, organic vessel in illustration is truly unsettling. Yeah. And the comic also has the benefit of not being trapped with Stephen King's performance of the character. <laughs> yeah, a real goof. I mean, I think the film version with Stephen King playing Jody is fun, and I really love these visions that Jody has. You know, he goes, Oh, I can make money off of this meteorite. And so we flash to this university where he presents the meteorite, and this guy's like, No, 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 you're not gonna make any money. And he, and like, all his insecurities play out in these really goofy flashbacks. Those are a lot of fun in the film and probably are even more humorous in the film than they are in the comic book. But going back to the, the monstrous nature of this consumption of this plant alien, it's stunning, it's gorgeous, it's icky, it's gross, it's unsettling. I think that the final page with Jordy as got full swamp thing, yeah. loading the shotgun, and meeting his end, I think is a thing of beauty. Right, uh, yeah, it's gorgeous, gorgeous. So rich. And so, in the film, this would probably be my second to least favorite uh, segment of the film of, of the anthology, but in the comic book, it's my favorite yeah. of the of the whole book. I really like the next one. Too. Well, let's talk about that. The crane. The crane. This one we should talk from a relationship standpoint because there is a lot to learn <laughs> in the relationship of Wilma Northrup and uh, Doctor Northrup. Played in the movie by Hal Holbrook and Adrian Barbeau, doing two really amazing performances. Very cartoonish, but appropriately so, like every performance in the Creepshow movie. Yeah. This is a story about um, this guy. He has this really rotten, overbearing, alcoholic wife, and he's just feeling crushed by her. Meanwhile, one of his colleagues finds a crate underneath a set of stairs, and when he and the janitor get the crate open, a monster is loosed. 
Father's Day, we spoiled. Oh yeah, okay, good. Never mind. I thought we're you were accusing me of something. No, 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 no. Yeah, yeah, I yeah. would so never accuse you of anything. <laughs> so, so there's a monster in the crate. Uh, starts eating people. The colleague is panicked. He goes to Hal Holbrook. He's like, "There's this monster," and I'm crying. And Hal Holbrook is like, "I'll help you get rid of that monster, but first, the perfect crime." <laughs> so he gets his rotten wife to go. Like he lures her with. Some gossip. Well, he drugs his friend who found the crate. He does. So that he can't stop him from doing this murder. Exactly. So, and he lures his wife going like, oh, you know, my colleague, he's in trouble. He's He's been, you know, hanging out too much with his <laughs> students. And now he's got this woman and she's hiding underneath the stairs. And Billy, you're the only person I know who can handle a situation like this. So she takes her, um, like her cocktail that was like just milk and vodka <laughs> and um, just straight from the fridge and she takes her glass into the car and she drives to the university and uh, he feeds her to the monster and then the monster is so great both in the film and in the comic I, again I think the comic has the benefit of Wrightson's reality is monstrous reality but even in the film the monster's pretty cool it's who like who does this, the makeup for that uh, I think it's Tom Savini's yes, guys yes uh, with, uh, and the, the monster's like this gorilla he's a wolf yeti. thing like he, not a yeti but he's a it's like a, a squat sasquatch sasquatch <laughs> he's a sasquatch but it's a it's a cool creature in the, in the movie but again Wrightson's artwork elevates the monster into a true horror. I love the volume of blood, though, in the movie. So much blood. So much blood. And what I love about the movie is that Romero is using gels. Yeah. It's so colorful. Uh, Like, intensely colorful. Yeah. So many reds, so many blues to express horror, emotion. Melodrama. Melodrama, yeah. Uh, So that's a good story. The next one. This is my favorite in the movie. This is my. Tide you over. And it's my favorite in the movie as well. Oh, cool. Uh, uh, something to tide you over. Uh, what's the general premise, Lisa? Uh, there is this guy. He's having it out with. Oh, hmm. I there's two this guys, and I'm horrible with characters. So names. there's Ted Danson <laughs> and Leslie Nielsen. Yeah. So Leslie Nielsen has Ted Danson in his home, and he's like, "You're sleeping with my wife." <laughs> And, you know, you, and Ted Danson's like, but I love her and she'll be happier. And, he's, and uh, Leslie Nielsen is like, let's take a ride. And so he, so Ted Danson and Leslie Nielsen go on a ride to the beach. And there, um, uh, Leslie Nielsen pulls a gun on him and has, and Ted Danson has to bury himself neck deep in the sand. And then Leslie Nielsen pulls out this old, well, I guess it wasn't old at the time, a cutting-edge television VCR system, and he turns it on, and uh, Ted Danson sees that his lover, Leslie Nielsen's wife, is also buried in the sand down the beach, and the tide is getting to her, so she's starting to drown, and Ted Danson is forced to watch his lover drown on the VHS machine as he drowns, and then... um, Leslie Nielsen, soups proud of himself, goes back to his home, and he has this library of tapes, VHS tapes, where clearly this isn't his first murder, <laughs> but he starts getting the, he starts giving himself the willies. He's at home, he's getting nervous, he thinks he hears something, and then uh, 
he steps out of the shower and uh, two zombie waterlogged corpses are going like yeah in the movie they're very they're very ghoulish yeah they're really gross and he fires a couple bullets into him and, they and have then like, just green splotchy water comes yeah, out his nasty so good the comic is pretty good and the last page of the comic that uh, write, writes and illustrates is good with Leslie Nielsen staring out at the ocean yeah come, and the, with the water coming after him yeah alright final tale of Creepshow Lisa this your is, favorite this is definitely the most gross this is <laughs> they're creeping up on you yeah 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 so this one, there's like a Howard Hughes type guy, a real cutthroat CEO type person. Corporate monster. And he's got, he's living in this sterile apartment because he hates germs and more than germs, he hates bugs. And he's on the phone with um, the landlord, I guess, going like, I don't care if you're on vacation, I found a bug and you need to drop everything. If I don't have an exterminator here in 30 minutes or less, you know, you're not going to have a job In anymore. 10 miles, oh. take exit 15 on to Cross County Parkway West toward George Washington Bridge. Thank you, Siri. Thank you. And, um, <laughs> so, um, meanwhile, he gets a phone call. He finds out that, um, one of the heads of one of the other companies that this guy's taking over has killed himself because of losing all of the wealth to this guy and and his wife distraught wife calls and is like you're horrible and he's like yeah well you know I squash bugs your, your husband's a bug but slowly as this is happening he's spraying more and more cockroaches and before you know it like there are cockroaches everywhere and then there's a power outage in New York and you know that when there's a power outage all that's when all of the cockroaches come out and this guy is overwhelmed with cockroaches and the comic book ends with um, the um, ends with the narrator with the creep going like so what do you have to say for yourself evil man and then he opens his mouth to say something and just cockroaches spew out. Yeah, yeah, a little bit of a different ending than the film. Yeah. Because in the film, uh, you know, uh, the uh, tenant, the uh, landlord comes back to fix his problem, opens the door, sees the guy, and the guy, like, explodes into... Yeah, they're, like, popping out of his skin. So gross. It is nasty. Yeah, yeah. And if you have a problem with watching real bugs die for your entertainment... that's sad. Yeah, yeah. Even cockroaches deserve to live, Lisa. Right. Well, I think about the person who brings the crate of cockroaches. Like, these are all my co-workers, these cockroaches. I doubt he feels that way. And, like, the certain... I don't know. I just... It makes me sad to see this guy just, like... Like, the cockroaches didn't move in. Like, they didn't want yeah, to be there. Yeah. They, they're just getting tromped on. Well, The so- worst part, though, in the in the film was the, um, the Cuisinart. Oh, so So gross. nasty. He's, like, making himself his super healthy uh, oatmeal concoction. Oh. And then um, he's, like, tasting it. And there's, like, these weird chunks in it. Yeah. So he goes back to the Cuisinart to see what's going on. And it's full of cockroaches. Do you remember when we first <laughs> moved into our apartment, we had that little bug infestation? Those, like, yeah, gnats? Yeah, we had stink bugs. Well, no, not, not the stink bugs. Remember in the rice, there was those little gnat-like things? Oh, And yeah. I was cooking rice. Oh. And I was like, what are all these little, like, brown rice uh, uh, grains? Oh, no, those are bugs. That's awful. Yeah, yeah. That's really awful. We also had an infestation of stink bugs. That was hilarious. We did. Uh, 
All right, so that's Creepshow. Lisa, are, are you on my side? Do you feel like the graphic novel is even more fun than the movie itself? Kind of think it's six of one and half a dozen of the other. They both have their own something to offer. I find them both equally fun. I mean, I, I really like, I, I genuinely really enjoy the movie. It's a fun movie. I think the graphic novel is freaking great. I think the graphic for, novel is a higher quality item. Yes, yes. For what it is, and, you know, in recreating Tales from the Crypt, I've seen a lot of, uh, of, of comics try to do Tales from the Crypt type uh, products. This is the best one. And it's because of uh, Bernie and Michelle Wrightson. Yeah. And we're going to come back to Bernie Wrightson on this podcast uh, in a non-car episode. Yeah. Uh, we'll, we're At some point, probably this year, probably towards October, I'm thinking, we're going to cover uh, Swamp Thing and Abbey. And if we do that, we'll see uh, Wrightson return to the CBCC show. Do you have any recommendations for any couples who may be listening for how, how to travel with your spouse or how to plan your own nerdcation with your nerdy lover? Uh, you know, I think one of the key ingredient is that you're both doing what you want to be doing. Yeah, that's definitely true. <laughs> you know, you don't want any road to Abilene situations where... Uh, you know, like I go like, well, I want to go to Fairmont Market. And you're like, yeah, <laughs> sure, I want to go to Fairmont Market. And then you get to Fairmont Market, and then your wife goes, actually, no, I don't want this. That but you said you did. Well, I was just trying to make you happy. But now you're not making me happy. <laughs> that is something that did happen on this trip. <laughs> Communication like, is key. <laughs> when it comes to road food, Brad and I have very different visions of what exactly we want to Yeah, I want to eat like a garbage monster. <laughs> And I want to eat. I want to eat something novel and fancy, and I don't want to feel like at the end of the weekend like hot garbage. Yeah, we ate a lot of good food. We did. What was your favorite thing that you ate? Oh, fiddlehead. Fiddlehead. Fiddlehead in Bangor was really, really tasty. Um, I had a beet Wellington. That was their vegetarian option, and it was beets wrapped in puff pastry, like a loaf, and it was like so yummy. Oh. But then the best thing was that egg. They, oh, yeah. There was like this masala egg, like poached egg, poached egg, like Indian food, and they give you like roti, and you dip the roti in the egg. It was, it was so that good. was that was pretty good. My favorite meal was still the first one we had at Dice Arts, the uh, two lobster rolls and a bottle of Moxie. Yeah. And man, are we coming back with Moxie? I have <laughs> I have three uh, cases of Moxie cans in the trunk right now. If you guys don't know what Moxie is, Moxie, it's nerve food. Moxie is a regional soda that actually comes from Maine. It has a similar origin to Coca Cola or you know any soda where it originally started as this kind of cure all panacea thing, where it has some kind of I forget what it's called, but it has some kind of root in it. Yeah, some Brazilian root. I don't think it's Brazilian. I thought I it was think Brazilian. It's, South yeah, American? I think it's something... I think he claimed it was South American, but I think it's something native oh, to okay. Maine. But um, what Moxie is known for is uh, being super sweet and having a very bitter aftertaste. It so, lives up to its name. And it does. It, has, it, it tastes kind of like... Um, root beer adjacent. Yeah. It's super sweet. It has kind of that gingery root beery 
Yeah, taste. yeah, but it, I mean, but it me, has a, like an acrid aftertaste. It tastes like moxie. Moxie only tastes like one thing, and it's moxie. And you either love it or you hate it. To me, the best way to drink moxie is on its own, super cold. Yeah, but you'd never had it before. Uh, I've tasted it because we have a friend who actually is from Bangor, and so when he would go home, he would bring back yeah things of it. One of my of cases it. is for him. Yeah. And uh, so I had tried it at his house, just straight out of the can. Yeah. Right. And I and I don't remember at his house really loving it or hating it. I think I, I grew to love it on this trip. I would just sneak. I, initially, I was just sneaking sips from Brad's Moxie, and then before you know it, I was like, I need one of these. For yeah, myself. give me a bottle. <laughs> <laughs> so good. So yeah. Uh, and what? So what would what would you suggest to a couple uh, going out on a nerd adventure? kind of uh, the opposite of yours, but I think complimentary <laughs> of you. No, no, to be game. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. To be game to do to do whatever and figure out a way. Like, to me, like, I was like, oh, you know, like, Stephen King isn't necessarily my thing. I hadn't ruled it out. I hadn't been like, Stephen King is not my thing. It's just, you know, it's one of those, like, nerd venues that I was less exposed to and I just hadn't had an opportunity to try. So I was game for doing this and I was game for, you know, preparing by reading some Stephen King stuff first. The night before our trip, I actually went to a screening of The Shining um, because it's a Stephen King film and it happened to be playing with our um, Alamo Ashburn Film Club. And so I went into this situation like full bore and I ended up having so much fun. Plus, Brad is just amazing company. <laughs> I mean, I think that point, uh, you know, to be GGG uh, yeah. in, in all things. Yeah. Um, you know, we were talking, well, what do we do next? We've done our pop culture adventure with Elvis. We've done our pop culture adventure with Stephen King. What would we do next? And you suggested going to Liverpool, to Abbey Road, to yeah. experience the Beatles. And, you know, I like the Beatles like everybody likes the Beatles. You know, they're all good songs. I, I tap my toe. I nod my head to them. But I'm not like a Beatle maniac by any means. But if we were going to go to Abbey Road, you got to get into that spirit. Yeah. And you need to pregame it. And then while you're there, you got to do it. You know, when we get to Bangor, we could have easily just hung out and looked at the Bangor-like sites. We didn't need to go to Orrington. We didn't need to go to Hancock. We didn't need to go to Durham. We didn't need to go to Portland. But once we're up here, we've already driven 12 hours to get here. What's another two hours to go to Durham, you know? And wherever we go, there's always a nerdy thing to do. Like, we hit a bunch of bookstores. Oh, yeah, let's promote some comic book shops. Uh, In Bangor, there's Top Shelf Comics. We bought a bunch of stuff there. They had some really great deals on old out-of-print trade paperbacks. The guy who worked there had been working in comic, in selling comics for like 35 years. Yeah, 35 years. He was super knowledgeable. Yep, and then we went to... Was that... No, did I get them confused? You did get them confused, but I was just going to let you run with it. Oh, no. Because that top shelf, it was actually the kid. Oh, yeah, he was semi-knowledgeable. No, he... We had a long conversation about Ron Lim. He saw that I was wearing my George Perez Infinity Gauntlet shirt, which I wear all the time, which you can probably notice from my Instagram feed. Uh, And we started talking Infinity Gauntlet and Ron Lim, and we had a good conversation with Ron Lim. He looked... The guy who worked there at Top Shelf looked like, like he could be another Franco. 
Oh, like a yeah. Dave Franco he or a James a, Franco? Yeah, but yeah, he had more of a like a Dave Franco vibe. <laughs> well, I'd rather have a Dave Franco vibe myself. Yeah. So congrats to that kid. And then so in Portland, yeah, we this went, is the knowledgeable guy. Right. We went to Casablanca Comics, and the guy working there, like Lisa said, had been working at comic book shops for 35 years. And Casablanca Comics was a, a basement store. Uh, pretty large. Again, a really strange and eclectic collection of out-of-print trade paperbacks. Yeah, which were separated out. Usually when we go to comic book stores, the, the out-of-print trades are in with the other comics. And if you find one, it's like finding like a, a needle yeah. in a haystack. But this one, they had all of their out-of-print stuff separated out. And... and priced accordingly. Yeah. Well, the price accordingly is slightly less cool. Yeah, but at the same time... We bought, I, we bought a, a stack of stuff. We bought a ton of stuff, and uh, I'm really excited to dig into my machine man from Barry Windsor Smith. Yes. So, yeah, uh, we went to uh, Richard Russo's bookshop in Portland, also Print, which was a cool shop. Yeah, they had a kind of a small graphic novel section. They had a sizable section for Pete for writers in Maine. Yep. So they had a bunch of his books. They had Vacation Land by John Hodgman. Yep, yep. They had all of the, the Big Nate comic strip books. Yeah. I hadn't realized that the Big Nate guy was a Mainer. I grew up reading Big Nate. Yeah, Pierce is his last name. I can't remember what his first name is. So yeah, that's our trip to Bangor. Um, we are going to have a crazy July. So next week we're going to return back to basics with the CBCC. We're starting a new series on Peter Parker and Mary Jane Watson. Uh, the first book that we are going to be discussing is Parallel Lives. We will not be recording it in a car, so don't worry about that. But if you love our car episodes, let us know because we're a little defensive about our car episodes because of the audio quality. And the fact that I can't Google things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're much more rambly. We're coughing and stuff. Uh, so let us know about that. In so two miles, oh, oh. take exit 15 onto Cross County Parkway West toward George Washington Bridge. I better change lanes. I wonder how that, like... Right now, we have the GPS turned up to, like, 11. I wonder how that's going to sound on the podcast. Oh, uh, it's going to blow your ears out. <laughs> sorry. Uh, sorry about that. Uh, okay, 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 okay. Parallel Lives, next week, Mary Jane and Peter. Then, the week after that, we'll have, you know, another episode uh, uh, revolving around that. Am I about to miss my exit? Uh, well, she'll tell us. She'll tell us, won't she? And we are getting into Comic-Con time. Yeah! Uh, July Comic-Con. 14th, Lisa and I are getting on a plane. We're heading to San Diego with our fellow dorks from the In the Mouth of Dorkness podcast, Darren Smith, the disco dork, and Brian Young, the turtle dork. And before we go to Comic-Con, we wanted to do a special Comic-Con survival guide episode for people who have always wanted to go, who are going this year. We've been doing this for nine years. We're experts. And we've we've picked up some tricks of the trade. And guys... Like, like bring a onesie to wear over your clothes if you're sleeping outside because it gets really cold because you're next to the water. That's a freebie. And I'm not going to spoil it yet, but we have a special guest that'll be showing up on In the Mouth of Darkness, and we're also gonna run it on the CBCC feed as well. It's a really, really cool special guest. Prepare your minds <laughs> to be blown. I'm, I'm, I'm nervous as I'll get out and incredibly excited. So you have that to look forward to as well. 
And we're going to try to keep the Spider-Man and Use Mary Jane. Use the left Jane. three lanes to take exit 15 on to cross County Parkway west toward George Washington Bridge. Thank you, Siri. Uh, we're going to try to use... We're going to try to release our regularly scheduled Peter Parker and Mary Jane episodes uh, every week. But, uh, you know, expect some changes as we go to San Diego. Uh, you know, scheduling's hard. Scheduling's Stick hard. Stick with us. We're going to give you the Continue. Sweet Thank con- you. <laughs> I will continue. Thank you. The sweet um, content that your little CBCC. In 2.6 miles, take exit 5 to 4 NS toward I-87. Loving hearts desire. <laughs> So there you go. Lisa, where can our listeners find you online? I am always accepting words of affirmation at Sidewalk Siren on Twitter, Instagram, and Letterboxd. Brad, where can our listeners send their words of affirmation to you? You can find me on all social medias at MouthDork. Uh, so there you go. You can give us the gift of an email. Oh, yes. CBCCpodcast at gmail.com. You can give us the gift of five stars on iTunes. Yes. That would be awesome with a little In review. two miles, take exit 5 to 4 NS toward I-87. We're going to do that. We're going to do that. And you can commit to this podcast by subscribing to us on iTunes, Podbean, and Spotify. And tell your friends about us. So until next time, folks, keep your love tank full. And your psychic rapport open. Doopy doopy.